said that children can't change the world? This is Teenage Tech Stories, the podcast where today's teens talk about their incredible technological achievements, from developing groundbreaking algorithms to innovating in healthcare or even leading their own nonprofit organizations. These young entrepreneurs are proof that it's never too early to start making the world a better place. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Teenage Tech Stories. My name is Beatriz Valero and today I'll be speaking with 17-year-old Alei Sash. Alei is a researcher, aspiring innovator and high school senior. He earned seventh place in this year's regional and science talent search for the development of a diagnostic tool that tracks eye movement to identify neurological disorders. He hopes that this invention can become a low-cost alternative to MRIs. Okay, so then to start, why don't you just tell me a little bit about yourself, like where you're from, how old are you, and just like a little introduction. Yeah, absolutely. My name is Alay. Uh, I'm 17 years old from Plano, Texas, and I'm kind of a researcher slash aspiring innovator. I work in uh, the field of kind of medical technology, and my research surrounds how we can use the eyes and the, the way our eyes move in order to understand deeper brain function, things like how diseases work and what we can do to prevent them and treat them and diagnose them. So I've been working on this research for about three years, and I'm currently working on how I can turn that research into a kind of a product that actually affects people uh, worldwide. So I'm, I'm using my research right now to try and create targeted concussion diagnostics for things like the sidelines of sports games to the military. So that's kind of a little bit about what I'm that's amazing. Okay, now how did you first start get interested in this like research uh, programming? So I got interested in research uh, a long time ago. I always wanted to be, I was always interested in the brain. I think it's, out, of, out of the parts of the human body, it's the most fascinating just because there's so much we don't know about it. Uh, and when there's something you don't know about it, uh, it's like an intrinsic thing that you want to learn about it. Uh, so, so the brain felt like an obvious choice to learn more about. And I got interested in a lot of different, like looking at different neuroscience research and literature. And I got really interested in this idea of eye movement. Uh, and it, it kind of stems from football, funnily enough. Uh, you notice that when a, when a player gets hit really hard on the football field, they're taken aside and the medic, or in this case, even the coach does a quick test on the patient or on, on the player uh, and mm-hmm. tries to determine if there's some kind of underlying concussion or minor traumatic brain injury. And th- there was a few problems I saw with this. One is how are they able to look for these really small and minute issues in the way the eyes move in what is basically the noisiest place in the world, right? The highest intensity uh, right in the middle of a football field. And then my second issue is if this works for concussions, why are we not using it for other similar brain-related or, or neurological changes. So I went with that idea that, hey, we can create targeted diagnostics by, one, creating a device that does this for you um, instead of a, a user, instead of like a, a doctor, because that always creates some kind of an error. And two, let's expand this to different diseases. So I wanted to work with Parkinson's dementia, multiple sclerosis, and ADHD. And the, the way where programming kind of comes in and tech comes in is it was a stark realization that I had no idea how to code or how to develop anything. And I was facing a challenge that required a lot of that. So I had to postpone everything by six months and take six months to basically learn and bootstrap uh, a bunch of different resources uh, to learn things like AI, to learn things like computer vision, uh, 
um, just basic programming from the start. But I used online resources to kind of like put it all together. Great. Okay, so can you like tell me a bit how the technology actually works? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a collection of camera sensors that goes around the eye and on top of the uh, laptop. But it basically Mm -hmm. what it's doing is it's doing two two different things. Uh, The first is called movement tracking. These are two different cameras underneath the eyes that are basically tracking just how the eyes move. So if a little twitch occurs or there's a tremor in the eye, uh, this is what's going to be able to catch that. And then there's the second step called gaze estimation. And this is a little different because it's using information from movement tracking along with the way a light reflects on the eye, it's called a blink, in order to create this mathematical computation of where you're looking on the screen called gaze estimation. So if you put a picture of the Mona Lisa in front of you, uh, movement tracking will look at it to see if your eye has any issues in the way it moves, right? Like if it's slow or if there's a tremor or a twitch. But gaze estimation is looking at where you're looking. So it might be a psychological difference uh, for, between a person who looks at the background of a Mona Lisa versus the person who looks at the foreground. So that's what gaze estimation is doing. And the last step uh, that kind of ties everything together is I'm using what's called a recurrent neural network with long short-term memory. It's a type of pattern recognition algorithm. And it's taking both movement ra- tracking and gaze estimation metrics, and it's attempting to find abnormal patterns uh, between the two of them uh, while a patient is looking at a dot that moves across the screen. So it's a simple dot that moves left to right, up and down, in circles. Uh, and a patient, whether it's a healthy patient, a multiple sclerosis or ADHD or Parkinson's or dementia patient, has to look at this dot moving across the screen and complete the task. And in some cases, uh, and this is what I found to be used as a diagnostic, the tool and the algorithm is able to identify these really specific and minute um, abnormalities that occur in patients. So in Parkinson's patients, when the dot changes direction, uh, on that change, they have a hard time reacting, so there's always a tremor that occurs there most of the time. Uh, in dementia patients, they seem to reject the task at hand, and they kind of just wander around the screen when the major um, coordination part of the start, test starts. And that, that kind of aligns with some of the symptoms we see with dementia. And then I'll give another example. Um, with multiple sclerosis, when there's two dots on the screen, instead of choosing one dot to follow like most people do, they tend to shift between them the entire time. So it's called a break in foveation, and it, it can tell something about like the attention span of the, of the multiple sclerosis. Wow, that's super interesting. And so I read that you did this test with like actual patients in the hospital. Can you tell me a bit about Yeah, um, so I, I developed the entire tool first, and then I realized that um, there mm-hmm. aren't really any data sets for, for trying to test things like eye tracking on, on specific disorders. So I was going to have to, um, well, I trained it on a data set of, of random eye tracking footage that I found, mm-hmm. and that's just to make the system work well. But to test it, I, I actually did need human participants. So I cold communicated a bunch of labs, and I worked with um, an individual clinic called the Lone Star Neurology Clinic in Frisco. And they basically supplied me with any patient that was willing to take a really quick five-minute test in four trials. Uh, so thankfully, it is a really quick test, and it's not invasive. So there aren't a lot of safety concerns, which means I can crowdfund a lot of patients easily. Um, so I was able to get through about 200 patients, and that's healthy controls of different age groups, and then the four different types of diseases, Parkinson's, dementia, multiple sclerosis, and ADHD. And between the four trials, it gave me enough data points 
to create statistically significant results that created basically a proof of concept diagnostic. And that's what I'm running off of right now uh, for my future research. Okay, so right now, what's your next step? I, I have kind of two next steps coming out of uh, the same okay. thing. Uh, but for the past year, I've been working on how we can use the eye tracking fo uh, footage and eye tracking data to basically generate MRI scans. So everybody's heard of MRI or magnetic resonance imaging. It's, it has a long-standing tradition of being like one of the most important diagnostic tools in hospital settings. But the issue is, is it uses this big clunky machine and you can't get it to the places it needs the most, like rural areas, third, uh, third world countries and, and the military and sidelines. So I want to recreate the idea of what's called a functional MRI. An fMRI is uh, basically a type of MRI that works on the brain that attempts to plot, based on blood oxygen levels, uh, where activity is occurring. So what I did is I created this completely new system that shows patients 60 strategic images, like the Mona Lisa, the Eiffel Tower, a picture of a face, a picture of an upside-down face. They're really strategic to induce different kinds of emotions and different kinds of cognitive and motor functions. And then basically, by looking at the way our eyes move, healthy people versus normal, uh, versus neuro, non-neurotypical patients, like people with ALS, for example, we can create a baseline for what normal eye behavior looks like during these 16 images. And basically, what it's able to do is translate these patterns into activity that's occurring on a blank scan. So my finished MRI scan doesn't show anatomical features like this is where a tumor is or this is where... Um, the occipital lobe is, but it shows a blank scan, a reference of the brain, and it shows where activity is predicted to be. So it shows, hey, there might be activity in what's called the parahippocampal place area, uh, and that's a good sign. If there wasn't, then there would be an issue with the patient's memory. That could help us diagnose it with dementia, with Parkinson, with ALS. So rather than targeting a specific disease like I did in my previous research, my goal with this research was to create kind of an entire baseline universal metric so that we can create a frontline metric for, hey, what is brain, uh, what, what, is neuro, what is their neurological health from the get-go? If we can determine, hey, all of the regions of the brain are acting normally, then we can move on. But if there's one area that is not working well, we can send them to a kind of specialist. And that's the most important thing, right, is a kind of divergent metric to move them in a better area, move a patient in a better area. And then my second research or my second kind of thing I'm doing is I'm trying to develop a more of a self-enclosed VR headset that works with the system so that it can be used on the field and then kind of in different portable areas. So my goal is to create the most portable diagnostic for concussion. Concussion diagnostics is a really big market or really big area because there's things like the military and, and, and big sports leagues like the NFL and FIFA. That, that need access to uh, really fast and really portable concussion diagnostics for the safety of their players and the safety of their, um, their military members. So in that case, I'm trying to develop really fast, but also really affordable and diagnostic for Find us at Tech for Good on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram, and on Twitter at techforgood underscore. Amazing. And yeah, there's definitely a need for devices that can be taken out of the hospital. And used yeah, absolutely. Really, really cool. And yeah, would you say the hardest part was the beginning learning to code, or was there any other challenges that you faced? So I think there were two pivotally hard points. 
the first was obviously learning mm-hmm. to code. I had no like background in anything, and I kind of just had to hit it right in like start just somewhere. And I I got along with it uh, over a six month period, but it was definitely hard learning advanced concepts like computer vision and targeted part pattern recognition and stuff like that. But the second biggest thing I would say is the cliff between hey I have a device and I need to start testing. So it can be pretty daunting for a seventeen year old, or I guess at the time I was the first time I started working with patients was 15, to walk up to a clinic and say, hey, I'm a 15-year-old with a uh, experimental neurological test. Can I test it on some of your most uh, vulnerable patients? It can be pretty hard to get get away with that. So I had to work on things like pitches, and I had to work on things like proposals, and then I had to contact as many people as possible because I I needed to make sure, one, that patients were safe, uh, but two that the people who are in charge of the patients are not under any kind of liability. So I had to jump through groups like IRB approval. I had to um, basically talk to a bunch of neuroscientists in the field to make sure that what I'm doing does not harm anybody in any way. Thankfully, I don't have any like lasers or any kind of like invasive techniques. So <laughs> it's, it's not, yeah, it's not horrible, um, but it's definitely a, a hoop to jump through. Yeah, it must have been a challenge, especially with medical stuff. And then, obviously, I saw you won seventh place in the Regener Science Talent Search competition. Congratulations for that. Thank you. Thank you. And then I was wondering, like, what it means to you or how does the experience? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've been involved in science here for a long time. I think I started around the ninth grade Mm -hmm. or eighth grade. And Mm -hmm. for uh, people in science, at least in the United States, uh, the Regeneron Science Talent Search is this, like, big idea that that everybody wants to get to at some point, but uh, yes. people kind of put it at the back of their head because it's, it's a really hard competition to get to. There's a lot of entrants, mm-hmm. and then they only pick 40 finalists nationwide, mm-hmm. as opposed to like the International Science Fair, which picks around 1,800. So mm-hmm. I turned in my 25-page paper for the Regeneron Science Concert, and I was I was surprised when I got to top 300. It's called semifinals for scholars, and then I was really surprised when I got to top 40. But the actual experience of the fair is unlike any other science experience or STEM experience I've ever had. Because it's it's more of a, like a close-knit community than anything. There's no kind of sense of competitiveness or cutthroatness. Everybody's working together, learn about each other's projects, and, and learn about you know science as a whole. We get to talk to amazing speakers like uh, people from SpaceX, people from these really high-energy startups, four or five Nobel laureates. And then, like, the heads of big companies like Regeneron and Intel and stuff like that. So we got the opportunity to talk to a lot of people that are considered mentors or heroes for us, but also work with each other. And it's been a month since the competition, and I still consider some of the people I met in that competition some of my best friends. And I think it's a really unique experience for anybody who's interested in applying because it's, uh, one, a really big financial thing if you want to go to college. Like, uh, the award I got was $70,000 on top of Anybody who gets to the top 40 gets a $25,000 award. And I think just mm-hmm. the, the cliff of getting to something like this, it really becomes the pinnacle of your, your high school career. So you get to meet a lot of amazing people. Normally, you get to go to D.C. for a week, but I'm not totally uh, sure on that. Uh, but normally, you have this really uh, experience. Yeah, even virtual. Uh, and this is something that I came in with a, a little surprising. Even virtual, I got a chance to meet a lot of amazing people and had a lot of fun with that week. Not something I'd expect. I'd expect it to be just judging and done. But I was up on Zoom calls until 7 a.m. in the morning with some of my friends from the SDS 
and we were talking about things like judging and, and one of the things is SDS judging coming in, you have no idea what to expect. It's kind of kept underground. But then you come out of the three days of judging and you are traumatized. Like these three days of judging are absolutely <laughs> insane. Things you've never heard before about your project. Uh, topics that the judges know more about, even though you probably should know more about it considering it's your research. Uh, so there's three days of this intense judging and then there's uh, the award ceremony at the end where they announced the top 10 and the Seaborg award winner. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun. If it was something I could do in person, I definitely would jump at the opportunity. No, that's amazing. That's incredible. Congratulations. Hopefully, you can get to go to Washington. Yeah, hopefully. That would be very fun. Okay. And then, yeah, my last question was just, where do you see yourself in like five years' time? What do you want to study or what do you want to do with your projects? Right now, okay. my plan is I'm, I'm, a, I'm going to Yale. Oh, under, thank you. I'm under this scholarship there called the Han Fellowship. The Han Fellowship lets me work with any professor or any research institution that I want. So uh, Yale has this mm-hmm. thing called the Wusai Neuroscience Institute. It's this really big interdisciplinary mm-hmm. building that brings together cognitive scientists, neuroscientists, and like computer scientists for like AI and behavioral work. And I'm attempting to work with professors there at the, the Wusai Institute and the Yale New Haven Hospital, which is this big tra- level, level one trauma center. So that any time a concussion patient comes through the hospital, it can be matriculated into my clinical trial. So that over a span of the first three years of my college, I can get enough patients in a, in a concussion or like a, the first ever, biggest ever concussion clinical mm-hmm. trial with eye tracking so that uh, when I come out of college, I can attempt to do FDA approval. And FDA approval is this really daunting thing, especially for someone who's working in the medical device industry. It can be really hard and really like a blood, sweat, and tears thing to get FDA approval. So I wanted to get a mm-hmm. jump on it early. That's my current plan. And then the years after college, and I guess that's what you meant by five years, uh, I want to be working on this idea of, of bringing eye tracking to the market. So I currently dubbed it as Oculo. That's O-C-U-L-O is the name of the, the product that I'm trying to bring to market. But overall, mm-hmm. like long term, I want to be working on, I want to be working on democratizing healthcare. So kind of working with companies, uh, startups that can effectively bring healthcare to the masses rather than to people who don't need it or people who, you know, keeping education of healthcare uh, to to an elite few uh, can be a really uh, marginalized thing because if we can democratize education and, and, and medical um, devices and stuff like that to people who need it, you know, people can diagnose themselves, people can treat themselves, people can help better themselves, then that's a really big um stepping stone that we need to make to, to bringing healthcare to everyone, to democratizing healthcare. And then the second thing is I want to be working on what's called neural engineering. And in neural engineering, you're working on like brain computer interfaces. You're working on how us as humans interact with computers and how we can synergize with them, uh, improve uh, things like, hey, if in a surgery gone wrong, your Wernicke's area, which is charge of language and, and reading and stuff, if that goes dead, how can we re-energize those neurons to, to bring it back? So as, as time goes on, I want to go from kind of soft technology, like things that work on the inside, uh, to working with doctors in the field to bring technology to uh, really specific and targeted places, like how we can treat disorders using machinery instead of medicine. What's the new wave of, of healthcare as time goes on? Sounds amazing. Super exciting. Oh, so I can wait to see where you go. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Teenage Tech Stories. Like, review, subscribe, or visit us at techforgood.net to read more about today's guest and other incredible people who are using technology to make the world a better place.